0: chapter twenty of the life and times of kateri tekakwitha the lily of the mohawks by ellen walworth this librivox recording is in the public domain montreal and the isle auxeran sixteen seventy eight it is certain that kateri tekakwitha visited the french settlement on the north side of the river for cholenec thus writes while passing some days at montreal where for the first time she saw the nuns she was so charmed with their modesty and devotion that she informed herself most thoroughly with regard to the manner in which these holy sisters lived and the virtues which they practised kateri and Therese, for the two were inseparable with other indians from the sioux probably laden with goods to barter must have crossed over to montreal in canoes they paddled out into the broad smooth waters of the st lawrence below the great rapid where the river widens out like a lake they left far behind them their village with its tall wooden cross on the river bank and the wild île Ozeron, bearing up its sturdy clump of foliage in the midst of the splashing foam they passed at a distance the jesuit chapel at la prairie where a few frenchmen had built houses and formed the nucleus of a settlement and then moved quietly and rapidly on in their light canoes until they neared the isle st paul the southern shore of the river swept away in a great curve as they left the sioux and the prairie lands stretched away towards lake champlain while mount royal blocked the northern horizon finally after rounding the isle st paul they approached near enough to the northern bank to see where the first french fort had been built by the sierra des maisons on level land at the mouth of a little stream the spot is now called custom house square and the wild îlot normandin has been transformed into island wharf this fort had fallen into disuse and a second one was built on higher ground the great french guns that were pointed toward the river meant no harm to the christian indians who passed safely by and landed on vacant ground in the rear of a cluster of fortified buildings fronting on the rue saint paul this was the principal thoroughfare of the infant city of Ville-Marie. every house on the island of montreal was strongly built for defence each farm in the vicinity was connected with the town by a chain of redoubts not only the fort and the governor's mansion, but the mills, the brewery, the hospital or hotel-dieu, and the chief residences had high walls and outlying defenses. These buildings were so placed along the rue Saint-Paul that a cross-fire from them and from the bastioned fort across the little stream, which has since disappeared in the maze of modern streets, could be maintained in a way to render the position of the colonists impregnable against an indian assault this had all been done under the leadership of the first governor at the time of kateri's visit the chivalric de Maison had been recalled to france and de courcelles was governor-general the sulpicians whose seminary was centrally located on the principal street were lords of the seigneurie of montreal and could give grants of land though the recently arrived officers of the king disputed their right to dispense justice and to appoint the governor of Ville-Marie, marguerite bourgeois was still a leading spirit in the colony and was actively engaged in founding and conducting her schools for the indian and canadian children her convent of sisters of the Congregation of Notre Dame, after much delay and many trials, was at last successfully established opposite the Hotel Dieu on the Rue Saint Paul. Monseigneur de Laval, Bishop of Quebec, on his visit to Ville Marie in 1676, had formally recognized and approved her new order. There were at this time ten nuns in all associated with her in the work of teaching. They taught day scholars free of charge and worked diligently out of school hours to support themselves. In 1657, the sieur de Maisonneuve had given Marguerite Bourgeois a tract of land near the Hotel Dieu, on which was a well built stable, which she used for her first schoolhouse. The classes were assembled in the lower part of the building, while this indefatigable schoolmistress and her first assistants slept in the loft, to which they ascended by an outside staircase. As her school and community increased, she built a house that would shelter twelve persons. This also had proved insufficient, and she was now established in a fine large stone building, where a number of girls were safely housed and taught to read, write, and sew. The King of France allowed her a certain amount each year for the support of her Indian pupils. These were mostly at the school of the newly founded Sulpician Mission, on the mountainside. There the number of Indians was daily increasing. Monsieur Belmont, a Sulpician, taught the boys, and two of the congregation sisters had charge of the girls. Their favorite pupil, Marie-Thérèse Ganansaguas, meaning She Takes the Arm, Was in a few years to become herself a successful teacher in the Indian school and a gentle, lovable nun. At this time she was about eleven years old. When still younger, she had come with her aged grandfather from the Seneca country. He was a Christian, having been baptized in the Huron country by the great missionary Brebeuf the little Ganansaguas was adopted by governor de courcelles and placed under the care of marguerite bourgeois in the convent on the rue saint paul when the school of the mountain was opened in sixteen seventy six she was sent there in one or other of these two places she spent the remainder of her life as pupil novice and then schoolmistress her memory has sometimes been confused with that of kateri tekakwitha though she was ten years younger than the mohawk and led a very different sort of life Saguas grew up lived and died in a convent and was the first real indian nun a tablet to her memory is preserved in one of the towers of the old fort at the mission on mount royal this stone tower stands in the same enclosure with the costly modern buildings of the sulpicians in a beautiful part of the present city of montreal at the time of Kateri's visit, however, this same tower and fort was in the woods, for the buildings of the old town extended no farther from the river than the Rue Saint-Jacques. From there to the Indian schools of the mountain was a lonely road, leading past a solitary fortified farm belonging to the Sulpicians, La Ferme Saint-Gabriel. It was there that a priest, Monsieur Le Maître, had been tomahawked in August 1661. He was on guard while the laborers gathered in the harvest. His tragic death warned them to withdraw at once from the fields, and defend themselves within the farmhouse. Such incidents as this were then fresh in the minds of the people, and gave pathetic interest to many a spot near Via Marie. In 1678, rue Notre-Dame was a new street, not yet built up, and the foundations of the parish church were uncompleted but already the hôtel-dieu had a long history just five years had passed since mademoiselle Mance, the former friend of marguerite bourgeois and the one who founded the hôtel-dieu and brought the hospital nuns from france to conduct it had been laid to rest she died in sixteen seventy three her last request was that her body might be buried at the hôtel-dieu and her heart be placed under the sanctuary lamp in the new church of the parish it was but right that this should be done for she had given her whole life to founding not only the hospital but the city and colony at mount royal till the new church of notre dame should be finished the heart of the brave lady encased in a metal vase was hung in the chapel of the hôtel-dieu it was there for many years but the building of the church was delayed so long that the transfer of the precious deposit never took place The relic was lost at the time of a fire that destroyed the old chapel and hospital in 1695. Kateri may have seen the metal vase in the chapel of the hospital, but could scarcely have had time to learn its significance. Mademoiselle Mance had fulfilled a twofold task. She had distributed guns and ammunition to the colonists, and had nursed the wounded soldiers and Indians her life was often in danger at times she was quite alone in the hospital her courage enthusiasm and womanly care for the sick and suffering were a mainstay of the colony all through what has well been called its heroic age founded in a spirit of religious zeal for the conversion of the savages its struggle for existence in a wild country of warring races fills up a strange and interesting chapter in early american history quebec three rivers and montreal were for a long time the only settlements of any consequence in canada quebec was the great stronghold and starting point of french trade and colonization there too the jesuit missionaries had their headquarters and sent their reports which were combined into the famous relations so valuable now as history Three Rivers, the next important trading-post, was a long stride up the St. Lawrence and into the wilderness. There, as elsewhere, the French sought to share their faith with the Indians. Kateri's Algonquin mother, it will be remembered, had been baptized at Three Rivers before her capture by the Iroquois. Beyond that point, no permanent settlers had ventured until Montreal, the strange solitary island city, was established for no other purpose than to convert the red men to christianity the whole plan was made in france by a company of devout and wealthy persons two of the leading spirits not yet mentioned were monsieur Aulier, an ecclesiastic and monsieur de la Dauversire, a pious layman the site for the city was chosen and the island bought by men who had no practical knowledge of the country it was far inland and dependent entirely on its own resources when the indians were at war the people of quebec did not always know whether montreal existed or not so beset were its inhabitants at times by the unconverted warlike kindred of kateri the raids of the mohawks were checked by de tracy in sixteen sixty six but after all they were only one of five unfriendly nations who were liable to brandish the tomahawk at any time against the french in sixteen seventy eight there was a general peace along the whole line except for local and religious persecutions such as kateri had endured before coming to the sioux the worst days for Montreal had been about twenty years before, when their allies the Hurons were annihilated as a nation by the terrible Iroquois. At that time the French lived in a whirlwind of war and havoc. The remnant of Hurons that remained with them after the war were gathered together in the mission village of Lorette, near Quebec. Sillery in the same vicinity, was a settlement of the Christian Algonquins. In Kateri's time, these two missions nestled under the protecting guns of Quebec, just as the Indians of the praying castle where Kateri lived, and the Iroquois of the Sulpician mission on the slope of Mount Royal, felt bound to maintain a close friendship for defense, as well as through inclination, with their French neighbors at Montreal. The people of the Sioux and the people of the mountain were always welcomed and graciously received by the colonists of Villemarie. There were many things for them to see and learn there. But if the Hôtel-Dieu and the convent were at one end of the town, the brewery and the fort were at the other, and on the whole the Jesuit fathers at the Sioux liked it better when their Indians stayed at the mission. The trader of Montreal was much the same sort of man as the trader of Fort Orange. The early colonial town of the Frenchman, however, differed in many respects from the town of the Dutchman. It will be interesting, therefore, to follow Kateri as she leaves her canoe on the pebbly shore, and wander with her through the strange new streets of the Canadian town, just as we followed her uncle long ago on his journey to Albany on the shore of the Hudson." his pack of beaver-skins was examined and handled by the well-to-do traders of handelaire street so do the companions of kateri dispose of their indian wares with equal ease in the long and important rue st paul like the dutch thoroughfare it runs parallel with the river all the dwellings on one side have their backs turned to the water but their gardens do not extend all the way to the water's edge as at albany there are vacant building lots in the rear on the river bank the houses built of wood piece sur piece or of rounded pebbles stuck together with cement are all in the same style a rectangle covered with a steep roof slightly overtopped by the stone chimney two skylights to admit light into the garret on the long sides a door set between two windows and the walls pierced with loopholes for defense against the iroquois the interior is not less simple one large hall where all the family live as in batania a bed or lounge a sort of long coffer or chest with a cover that is opened out in the evening into which a mattress is spread and where the children sleep some chairs or small benches the extra clothing and the gun hung up on the wall this extra clothing was as unpretentious in style as the dwelling. A plain woolen garment with capo, girdle, and toque was the uniform of the Canadian colonists. Even the first governor, Sieur de Maisonneuve, wore it in the greater part of the year, except on state occasions. Of course, in the hottest weather, this warm outer garment was exchanged for a cooler shirt and a broad brimmed hat then the woollen coats with snow-shoes and other winter belongings of the settler were hung on pegs against the wall the home-trained garrison of montreal felt proud to hear the viceroy de tracy call them his capo's blues, for they knew right well he could scarcely have triumphed over the mohawks without their assistance his veterans scarred in the turkish wars were indeed a sorry sight to behold on the expedition of 1666, when they stumbled about in the snow, and lost their way in the forest of northern New York. Kateri remembered these soldiers well. She saw them in her childhood, when they were enemies and invaders of her home, and so she did not care to see them again. A glance at the fort and the fortified houses, the mills, the governor's house, and the seminary was enough for her. Already she stood at the corner of the Rue Saint-Paul and the Rue Saint-Joseph. If she chose to follow up the latter street, it would take her to the great square where the foundations of the new church of Notre-Dame had been laid. But the chapel of the Hôtel Dieu was right before her, and she entered there. The hospital sisters were chanting their office behind a wooden grating. Why were they out of sight? What did it all mean? She questioned her comrades, and they told her what little they themselves knew about the nuns. Not content with visiting the chapel, they gained permission to enter the hospital. What Kateri saw at the entrance on the Rue Saint-Paul was a great heavy wooden door, opening into a small building. Behind this was a large enclosure or yard, surrounded by a high stockade wall for defense, and containing several buildings, mostly of wood and somewhat out of repair the hospital sisters though chiefly of noble rank were poorly lodged and suffered many privations the hospital was endowed by a lady of fortune in paris but it had been built and equipped under the eyes of mademoiselle mans who cared for the sick herself till the sisters came from france after that she had dwelt close by them and continued in charge of their financial affairs until her death the nuns possessed some cows and other domestic animals there was also a little bakery in one part of the enclosure. In another place Sie de Bressol had a garden marked off, where she cultivated medicinal drugs. It was all very simple and primitive, but strange and marvellous to the eyes of Kateri. She saw how good the sisters were to the sick, and how simply and poorly they lived themselves. Their own beds were in a rough attic above the wards for the sick their linen was spotless but the observant kateri could not fail to see that their dresses were patched in many places though each of these ladies brought a dote with her to the convent when she entered the order in france they were often left with no resources save what their own industry brought them in the wilds of canada and even the hospital fund was lost to them through bad management over the sea but no misfortune could daunt them in their work of curing and converting the indians and caring for the disabled colonists they refused every overture to return to europe and shared in all the vicissitudes of the struggling colony rich at least in the good will of its people in the convent across the street from the Hotel dieu kateri and her friend were warmly welcomed by marguerite bourgeois and the sisters of the congregation it is probable that the two young indian girls stayed overnight at the convent for sir bourgeois delighted in entertaining just such guests to shield them from all harm while in the city and to win them to the practice of virtue and piety there is every reason to believe that kateri was much influenced and stimulated in her spiritual aspirations by what she saw there and above all, by coming in contact with the strong and saintly character of the woman who had founded so useful an order. Marguerite Bourgeois and her companions were successful in doing good from the very first, and to-day the great Via Maria, which is the outgrowth of her humble but earnest efforts, is set like a queenly diadem on the brow of Mount Royal. There, the young girls of America are still attracted, sheltered, taught, and incited by the nuns of her order to a life of virtue and good deeds, in much the same spirit that the early colonial bells and Indian maidens were gathered together long ago by Marguerite Bourgeois herself, the very first schoolmistress of the town. She was accustomed to wear a plain black dress, with a deep-pointed linen collar, almost a little cape besides this something that might be called either a short veil worn like a hood or a large black kerchief was drawn over her head and knotted loosely under her chin in her later days the edges of a white cap which she wore under this somber headdress showed about her face her nuns still wear a costume which she prescribed for them there is nothing peculiar about their black dress or the usual nun's veil which falls in loose folds from the head and shoulders but they wear an odd linen headdress with three points which is drawn together under the chin and projects downward in a stiff fold some of the sweetest of faces may be seen framed in this ungainly gear the hooded kerchief of marguerite Bouchois is more pleasing but she did not choose that it should be very comfortable a sister of hers discovered one day that the cap she wore under this kerchief was all bristling with bent pins She was perhaps allowing them to prick her into a remembrance of her sins at the very time she received Kateri and her friend with a gracious smile and led them into the convent. Several of the nuns were teaching their classes. Most of the children at the school were Canadians, but there were also Indian girls under her care, younger than Kateri, who could read and write and spin. Several of these were boarding pupils, supported by pensions from the king, Louis XIV., These became, under the care of the sisters, like demure little convent girls, scarcely to be distinguished from the Canadian children, except by their Indian features. The studious and modest little gononsagwas, though now sent to the new school at the mountain for a time, felt more at home in the Rue Saint-Paul, where she had spent four or five years. An Onondaga girl, a tontinon, called Mary Barbara at her baptism, was nearer Kateri's age she also aspired to join the sisterhood but was as yet too recently converted from heathenism to be admitted kateri felt shy and out of place no doubt among the little scholars whom she saw at via marie even though some of them were indians she felt perhaps as a wild deer of the forest might who chanced to stray into a park where petted fawns looked knowingly up at the half-frightened intruder as they quietly nibbled grass from the hands of the keepers if the young mohawk girl did not turn suddenly about and take the nearest path to the woods and thickets it was only because her timidity was held in check by a great eagerness to learn all she could about the life of those beautiful quiet nuns she knew they had come far away from their own country to teach the iroquois and the algonquins as well as the canadian children to live like christians kateri did not ask all the questions that came into her mind but this much she certainly learned that the sisters lived unmarried apart from the rest of the people and spent much time in prayer she had an opportunity also to observe some of their daily exercises and little practices of piety it is more than likely that she went with them on a visit of devotion to the stone chapel of bon secours a little way out of the town it was just finished at that time and a small statue of our lady brought from france by Sieur bourgeois had been placed there the officials of the town secured the garret of the church for a temporary arsenal to store their ammunition there was no other place as yet in Villemarie that was fireproof. The church of Bon has always been a favorite shrine. Kateri's devotion to the Blessed Virgin would naturally lead her there, before she left the city. She was both interested and attracted during her stay in Montreal by everything she saw at the convent of Notre-Dame and at the Hôtel Dieu, but she gave no intimation of a wish to remain with the nuns at either of these establishments, her whole life had been the life of an untamed indian she had accepted christianity in the only way in which under the circumstances it could possibly have been offered to her that is to say christianity pure and simple with few of the trappings of european civilization she was a living proof that an indian could be thoroughly christianized without being civilized at all in the ordinary sense of the word She was still a child of the woods, and out of her element elsewhere. It was with scarce a regret, then, that she returned with her friend to the Sioux, and resumed her usual life there. But her visit to Montreal had given her an intimation of something well known to the Christians of Europe, which had not been taught at the mission. The married state was frequently praised there, and always recommended to the Indians the black-gowns did not venture to give the counsel of st paul concerning virginity to a people that were but just learning to walk in the way of the commandments but kateri had been struck by the example of the jesuit fathers themselves and her penetrating mind had already guessed that something was withheld from her on this point after her visit to the nuns at montreal she was confirmed more than ever in her resolve to remain unmarried Kateri and Therese talked the matter over when she returned to the Sioux, and together they formed a plan for carrying out their idea of living a perfect life. It was a romantic rather than a practical project, but so quaint and beautiful that it is well worth telling. In the first place, Therese was discreet enough to recommend that they should have an older woman with them who would know all about the affair from the first. She said she knew just the right sort of a person, a good Christian, advanced in years, who had lived for some time at Quebec and also at Lorette, the older Huron mission, which was conducted on the same plan as the Iroquois mission at the Sioux. The name of this woman was Marie Scarichions. Kateri agreed to what her friend suggested, and on a certain day they all three assembled at the foot of the tall cross on the river bank, that they might consult together without interruption, it was a quiet dreamy spot and always the favorite resort of kateri for prayer and meditation or confidential interviews with her friend no sooner were they seated there than the old woman began to talk and to tell them that she also would gladly live as they wished to live that she had been taken care of once by the sisters at quebec when she was sick that she knew just how they lived for she had noticed them particularly she went on to say that she and thrse and kateri must never separate that they must all dress just alike and live together in one lodge kateri listened eagerly to all this talk hoping to gather some profit from it and begging the woman not to conceal from her anything she knew that would make her soul more pleasing to god as their imaginations grew more and more excited in picturing to one another the ideal life they would lead in their little community, shut off from everything that might distract them from prayer and holy thoughts, their eyes fell naturally enough upon the solitary, unfrequented Isle aux Zerons, which lay off in the midst of the rapids. "'There,' they said with sudden enthusiasm, as they pointed to the island, "'there is the place for our lodge of prayer.' and they began to portion it off in their thoughts and to plan an oratory with a cross under the trees they also tried to make out a rule of life for themselves but all at once they remembered father Frémont, the head of the mission and wondered what he would think of their project kateri had great respect for authority and a true spirit of obedience they agreed to do nothing without the consent of the blackgown One of them went at once to find him and told him why they were assembled, asking him at the same time if he did not approve of their plan. But, alas, the unfortunate messenger came back to the other two covered with confusion. The black gown, she said, had only laughed heartily at all their beautiful projects and made light of them, saying that they were too young in the faith to think of such a thing as founding a convent... It was too much out of the ordinary way, and quite unsuitable. The Isle Oseran was altogether too far from the village. The young men, going back and forth from Montreal, would be always in their cabin. Upon further consideration they concluded that, after all, what the father said was reasonable, and they thought no more of their convent of the Isle but Kateri, for her part, was determined to see the father herself a little later, and get from him, if possible, some further information about the life she wished to lead. Unforeseen circumstances obliged her, much sooner than she expected, to seek the counsel and advice of Father Scholinek on this very subject. For the adopted sister of Kateri was even then forming plans of her own for the disposal of her young relative." End of chapter 20